Well, we um, heard last week in uh, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we, we heard a story last week about David wanting to show kindness to anyone descended from his friend Jonathan, Jonathan who died in battle a decade or so earlier. And David found Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, and David was able to show him kindness. And that text last week gave us an opportunity to think about what the text means when it says kindness. And three times in chapter 9, you may remember, we read about kindness, which in verse 3 of that chapter was described as the kindness of God. And the Hebrew word, you may remember, um, the Hebrew word is hased. And it's an important word in the Old Testament. It is usually translated in our NIV Bibles, it's usually translated as kindness, but it can also be translated as love or mercy. And it's a word which is often linked to faithfulness because it is a word that is often linked to covenants, to promises. It's it's a word about remaining faithful to the obligations of an established relationship. So to to bring together all of the different flavors of this word, its whole range of meanings, we might translate chesed as faithful, promise-keeping, loving-kindness. That's how God operates. So it's how David wants to operate. God kept his word to David, saving him from disaster, from enemies, from death, even saving him from himself so many, many times. So now David wants to keep his word, keep his promises to others. And as this week's text opens, again we hear about David speaking about Hachsed. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, dies. Hanan, his son, succeeds to the throne. In verse 2, David says, to translate the Hebrew rather woodenly, David says, I will make loving kindness. <coughs> excuse me. I will make loving kindness with Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father made loving kindness with me. Well, we can assume that there was a treaty of peace. Um, second slide. Thank you. We can assume that there was a treaty of peace between David and King Nahash, between the Israelites and uh, the Ammonites. Um, the, the Ammonites weren't part of David's empire, but there was a settled, respected peace between the two countries, even though there'd been a long history of tension between the two nations before David. Nahash has been true to his covenant. David intends now to extend the same offer of peace and trust to Nahash's son, Hanan. He sends a delegation to express his sympathy and to, as David's ambassadors, bring a message of continuing goodwill between the two lands. This story is a useful foil to chapter 9. Uh, last week in chapter 9, David wants to make Hased uh, to fellow sons of Israel, to fellow Jews, so to speak. Now we see in chapter 10 that David also wants to make chesed to Gentiles, to those not covered by the covenant with Moses, to outsiders. David is going to extend faithful, loving kindness to Gentiles just as he does to Jews. However, as we heard, it all went horribly wrong. 
the ambassadors are sent home greatly humiliated. It's obvious to all of us that these poor guys would have looked utterly ridiculous. What is not perhaps so obvious is that in addition to looking ridiculous, there were very strong racial and anti-Semitic elements to this insult. The shaving off of half of the beard and the bottom half of their garments cut off that had very strong symbolic meanings. Uh, these men had been forced to violate the Torah in multiple ways. And so from verse 6, things rapidly descend into war, a war that eventually involves a total of seven different nations. It's important to notice that David didn't start this war. He did not pick this fight. Even after his ambassadors had been sent home humiliated, which is an insult designed to fall upon David, even after he'd been insulted, David didn't marshal his troops for war. He only sends out his troops after he hears that the Ammonites have hired a mercenary force from far and wide. This is an army built to dethrone David and to destroy his empire. Now David has to respond. The survival of Israel depends on it. We also notice, just one other thing to notice along the way, is that David sends out Joab, his commander-in-chief, but he does not go with him. Now, David is an extraordinarily talented military commander, and as king, it is his job to be there. But he doesn't go. Why not? I don't know. I'm guessing. But my guess is that actually David's had a gutful of battle. He's had a gutful of war. Although as a young man he was undefeatable on the battlefield, now I think as a middle-aged man he's more interested in building, not destroying. More interested in making loving kindness than in making war. I note it here, however, because next week we'll see that David's dislike of warfare actually gets him into trouble. Well, how does the war go? Well, actually, we've already heard the Israelites win. The Ammonites are brought into the Davidic Empire, forced into peace and into paying tribute. They're now a vassal state. David's power over the Arameans is also reasserted and indeed extended beyond uh, the Euphrates River. So David comes out stronger. And that's good, and it's encouraging, and it's nice. But to suck on the marrow of this text a, a bit, I, I think that perhaps there are three things that we should think about in more detail, three things that function as, as, as themes in our text. And those three things are judgment, fear, and cursing. So let's think about those three things. Let's begin with judgment. Hanan and his army commanders judge David, and in turn, they are judged. We, we don't know exactly why the army commanders misinterpret David's act of sending ambassadors to express his sympathy. Perhaps they genuinely believed, that, believed what they were saying to Hanan, that David's action was a ruse. Perhaps they genuinely feared for the safety of their king and country. Or perhaps, actually, as, as, older, as older military commanders now with this young king, perhaps they uh, saw an opportunity. Uh, certainly young kings in the Bible are easily manipulated. 
But technically, the sin that they commit is the sin of judging David. They claim to know something that actually they couldn't possibly know. That they claim to know the thoughts and motivations of David's heart. Their claim is that David's heart motivations are evil and that the delegation is a lie. David is therefore a threat, an evil liar, a deceiver bent on defeating Amon. Now, Jesus teaches us not to judge. Not meaning at all that we should suspend all conversations about what's right and wrong. Not meaning that at all. But rather that we are not to judge one another. Meaning we're not to presume to know each other's heart's motivation. Only God, know, only God alone knows our hearts. We are not to presume to know each other's heart's motivation and to assume that those motivations are evil with a view to rejecting each other. That's what it means to judge. And in fact, when somebody judges you, when they assume that you're motivated by some political or evil or self-interest, it, it's very, very painful. We're not to do that. Hanan didn't, didn't spot that he was being lobbied. He didn't spot that he was being manipulated. It's a useful skill to have, by the way, the ability to spot it when somebody is lobbying you. That's a good skill. Uh, if he had spotted that, he could have judged them in the right and proper sense of calling them to account for their misbehavior. Oh, so David is trying to trick me, is he? How do you know that? Actually, you don't know that, do you? You're judging him. Uh, in the Gospels, irony is always present whenever people judge Jesus because you can be absolutely sure of it. Before that story is through, the people who judge Jesus are themselves judged by Jesus before the story is concluded. And that's, what ha that's what's happening here. Hanan judged David and ends up judged by David, suffering under Davidic judgment. So that's a few words on judgment. Let's think about fear. Fear runs through this passage as a clear theme. Fear of envoys, fear of the offense that's being caused, fear of retaliation, fear of war, fear of battle, fear of soldiers, fear of death. In this cascade of fear, Joab actually comes through as a little bit of a hero. Joab is not in particular a hero in the Bible. He believes in the Lord, the God of the Bible, but he's not a man of strong faith. But in today's passage, he knows what needs to be done, and he does it. And that's a really good definition of Hebrew wisdom, knowing what needs to be done and doing it. Joab sees that there are battle lines both in front of them and behind them, and that's frightening. He comes up with a plan. He himself will lead a smaller force against the mercenary troops behind them, a smaller force but made up of some of their most experienced and capable fighting men. Meanwhile, his brother Abishai will lead the bulk of the troops against the Ammonites in front of them. This is the plan. Hey, if the mercenaries are too strong for me, you come and help me. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, Abishai, we'll come and help you. It's not a foolproof plan. What if both opponents are too strong? <laughs> 
But it is a plan on a day when a plan is needed. And any plan that can't be changed is a bad plan. At least they have a plan. And secondly, Joab makes a speech, ostensibly to Abishai, but probably to all the men. Verse 17, be strong. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. It's not a great speech. I think it shows Joab to be actually a man of little faith, really. But it is a speech on a day when a speech is needed and it does the job. Um, his speech, I guess if we were to unpack it and expand upon Joab's speech, I think Joab's speech would go a little bit like this. Hey, I know that you're scared. <laughs> we're both outnumbered and surrounded. But today is a day to forget about yourself. Stop worrying about yourself. Think about why we're here. The survival of our nation, of our cities, of our families depends upon us today defeating this enemy. And remember, the battle is the Lord's. I don't know how this is going to end, but we can trust God with it and get on with it. And the speech did the trick. Joab and his troops, the, the smaller force, but the more experienced ones, we remember, they, they run at the Aramean mercenaries and the mercenaries flee. They flee. They run away because they're scared. They're frightened. The Israelites manage to swallow their fear and move in the opposing spirit. The Arameans are controlled by their fear and they move in the opposing direction. I have no idea what it's like to be a soldier on a battlefield, but I'm very familiar with fear. If we can defeat fear, we can defeat anything. Lord, have mercy. And on that day, the fear was contagious. The Ammonites see their expensively bought foreign legionaries running away, and they get scared too, and they run away. When danger reared its ugly head, brave Sir Robin turned and fled. Brave, brave Sir Robin. Just to um, quote Monty Python. They run away. I get the impression that there was almost no actual fighting on that day, just fleeing. Fear. It controls people. I hate fear, and I have a running battle with it in my life. This is not a new thing. But I find courage in Joab's speech. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop worrying about yourself. Think about why you're here. Be strong and do the work that God has given you to do. Do it bravely for the sake of God's people and for the glory of Jesus. And remember, the battle is the Lord's. I don't know how this is going to end, but I can trust God with it. And get on with it. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. We've looked at judgment, we've uh, looked at fear. Um, now let's think about cursing. Cursing. Um, David blesses, but is cursed in response. Hanan repays good with evil. But the curse is turned by God into a blessing. David is more powerful at the end than he was at the beginning. Now, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm in the habit 
to some degree, of, of saying, you may have heard me say, God will turn every curse into a blessing. And someone recently said to me, um, Stephen, where does it say that in the Bible? And I had to reply, I don't know. It's, it's the vibe of the thing. But it is, actually. It is the vibe. It's a clear and consistent theme from one end of the Bible to the other. God turns curses into blessings for those who trust him. When the people of God are cursed, that is to say, when bad things happen to them, they inevitably are better off at the end than they were at the beginning as long as they just keep trusting God. Look for this yourself in your Bible reading and you'll find it everywhere. It's a biblical theme. Fulfilled in the cross. We meant to curse Jesus, but God turned it into a blessing. I guess the place where this is said most clearly um, about God turning curses into blessings is Romans chapter 8, just a little bit before um, where Rachel quoted for us uh, earlier, um, Romans chapter 8, when Paul says, And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I, I, I find it hard to live this. I, I find it hard to believe this when bad things happen. I, I find it hard to believe this when bad things happen to people I love. And I find it hard to believe this when things go from bad to worse. But actually, having now been a Christian for some 26 years, I'm not just convinced by the testimony of Scripture, but also I'm convinced by simply seeing God do precisely that in my life whenever bad things have happened to me in the past. God has always turned them around, and I've been better off at the end than at the beginning. God turns curses into blessings. Just trust. I find it hard not to feel scared when scary things happen, but I can always make the decision of my will to trust. And in fact, when I, when I use that phrase, God turns curses into blessings, all I'm really doing doctrinally is restating the sovereignty of God. All I'm really doing is affirming that God reigns, not evil. I'm just simply saying that God is so much bigger than evil that in the end we'll all see it clearly. All evil is self-defeating and all evil will, in the final analysis, bow down and serve God's good purposes. So, so how can we apply what we've learned today? If you'll forgive the phrase, we should make love, not war. Like David by which I mean we offer others faithful, loving kindness, whether or not they are Christians. Do not judge people's hearts. That's God's job. Do judge people's actions. It is a good thing to be able to spot it when people are lobbying you, when people are manipulating you. Young kings do well to learn this lesson fast. We remember that people are easily manipulated by fear. If we can swallow our fears, if we cannot be controlled by them, we can take on any enemy. 
bad things do happen, as we trust God, we'll see him at work powerfully. And the Lord be with you.